so I've got a couple things I want to share real quick. First one is referring to something that you were just saying, Keith, about the fact that we have had all of these previous happiness strategies as we sort of grow through these different stages of development. And one of the big problems that we see, one of the dysfunctions that we see occurring is when we move from one stage to the next and we embrace a new set of happiness strategies, but we leave behind the various kinds of happiness strategies that worked for us previously and work for other people who are still at those other stages, which of course, Everyone is. People exist at these stages, you know, some people grow to a certain stage and hang out there for the rest of their lives, and that is perfectly okay. I just want to remind everyone again that, that when we're talking about stages of development, this isn't a question of inferior or superior or anything like that. It's really, you know, how suitable are you or is this stage to different kinds of complexity? Right? right. And there's different kinds of complexity and not everyone is dealing with the same kinds of complexity at all times. So I want to share this real quick. I'm going to share my screen. So the first thing I want to do is share this index of happiness strategies. And we can look at these different strategies from magenta all the way up to turquoise. So at the magenta stage, happiness strategies often revolve around superstition, rituals, and magical thinking. People may engage in various activities to appease spirits or seek protection from the unknown. Rituals and ceremonies, performing rituals to connect with nature or spirits. Storytelling, sharing and listening to myths and legends that bring a sense of meaning and wonder. Engaging with nature, exploring the natural world and connecting with the environment. Now, when we leave the magenta stage, obviously we leave sort of the surface structures, right? We're not necessarily trying to connect with spirits or, you know, things like that, but we still can maintain rituals, ceremonies, storytelling, a relationship with nature. It's just saying that this stuff comes online at Magenta and is translated in a particular way at Magenta, but there's pieces of this that we can and really should continue to carry with us Include. as we continue to develop. That's right. Include and transcend. That's right. And then we get to the red stage where happiness strategies are centered on asserting power, control, and self-expression. People seek to fulfill their desires and achieve personal gratification by pursuing personal goals, striving for success and recognition in various aspects of life, exercising power and control, establishing dominance in social or professional settings, indulging in pleasure, seeking enjoyment and satisfaction through various experiences. Again, there are healthy versions of this that we can and should take with us as we continue our journey through these stages. At the amber stage, happiness strategies are often based on conforming to social norms, traditions, and religious beliefs. People find happiness in belonging to a group and following shared rules. We see this particular dynamic on both the left and the right today. Yeah. This is where a lot of wokeism comes from, actually. It's an ethnocentric articulation of progressive values, you know, is one way to frame that. So the strategies here are engaging in religious practices, participating in religious ceremonies or rituals that bring a sense of meaning and purpose, upholding traditions, following cultural customs and practices to maintain a connection with one's heritage, building a community, establishing and nurturing relationships with others who share similar values and beliefs. The Amber Sage is a huge source oh, of Doesn't belongingness. Doesn't that sound attractive? Exactly. We have a group of people where we could do ceremony together and we can be connected together. Exactly. How many of us have a satisfying experience of that? I really want that part of Amber for all of us. 
hundred percent, hundred percent. And then here we make this transition between amber and orange, which is actually a bit of a leap for a lot of people. You know, one of the things that Jonathan Haidt likes to point out is that, you know, on the left, we often see more openness to new experiences, but a higher rate of neuroticism. And a lot of that neuroticism starts here at the orange self-authoring stage, because suddenly you have to exchange two different sources of meaning. You know, when you're at amber, your source of meaning is sort of being handed down to you from your community or your religion or, you know, whatever sort of that ethnocentric kind of group is, whatever that code of your group is, that becomes a source of meaning. But then we move to the next stage, which is orange, which is a self-authoring stage, where basically we're told there is no meaning except for the meaning that you can create for yourself. And honestly, that's a lot of pressure, right? It's hard to create meaning for yourself every day in an ongoing way without becoming completely neurotic. Especially for teenagers who are having to self-author a new identity now don't have the same structure that they had before to guide them to alternative identities. It creates a lot of anxiety. That's right. That's right. So at Orange, happiness strategies are focused on achieving personal goals, success, and material wealth. People strive for progress and self-improvement, setting and pursuing goals, establishing clear objectives in various areas of life and working towards them, embracing personal growth, continuously learning, developing skills, and seeking self-improvement, material success, accumulating wealth and possessions as a measure of achievement and happiness. Now, again, some of us might look at this, some of us who have already grown through the orange stage, and we might look at this list and be like, wow, there's some excesses there that, you know, I'm really glad that I... I left behind and totally fair enough, but there's also a sort of an underlying spirit here. There's a deep structure to all of these, That's right. right? So it's no longer that we want to accumulate wealth and possessions, you know, as a token of our success or as like bragging rights or something like that. But at the same time, don't we all crave comfort? Don't we all want to maximize comfort? Don't we all want to live in the nicest possible house? For example, you know, we want to have nice things. It makes us feel good to have nice things. Now, I think we can dislodge ourselves from sort of, you know, extracting an entire identity out of those nice things. But it's not like these things aren't nice to have once you move past the orange stage. And don't we want to feel autonomous? Yes. Don't we want to feel like we are not at the mercy of a boss or not the mercy of a larger group? Don't we want to feel like that we can have our own identity, that we can be the top of our own personal hierarchy? that we can do what we feel is right and be our own moral authority, um, particularly when you're involved with merit-based hierarchies and a sense of wanting to have operancy in the world. That's solid orange. 100%. And we want that. 100%. No, beautifully said, Keith. Thank you. Then we get to the green stage, where happiness strategies are oriented towards empathy, inclusion, and social justice. People seek to build strong relationships and contribute to the well-being of others. Some strategies here are engaging in activism, advocating for social justice and environmental causes, fostering community, building meaningful connections with diverse groups of people. We can actually see, I think, here uh, sort of an alignment with green and amber here. Both of them are about creating community. And this might be one of the reasons why we often see this backslide from healthy green observations of reality to unhealthy expressions of wokeness, which tend to get, you know, very fragile, very group centric, etc. And very in-group, out-group, 
we're being yeah. attacked by them. We need to attack them. Kind exactly. of a closet amber, really. Exactly. That's exactly right. And then the third strategy is practicing empathy and compassion, actively listening and understanding other people's perspectives and emotions, which again, we're going to get back to this in just a moment through a different lens of the polarity lens. So, you know, stay tuned for that. At the teal integral visionary stage, happiness strategies are based on integrating and transcending previous stages, focusing on personal growth and holistic well-being. It's built right into the definition here, right? Like the teal strategy is not separate from all the previous strategies that have emerged at these prior waves. In fact, what we're doing is we are coordinating, we're reinterpreting and retranslating those previous happiness strategies in ways that work for us now at this stage of our development. This includes integrating multiple perspectives, embracing different worldviews to create more inclusive and balanced understanding of the world. I mean, let me ask my audience, everyone who's watching right now, doesn't it feel good when you're able to bring different perspectives, especially perspectives that are typically seen as conflicting with each other or contradicting with each other. There's something about the teal mind that can bring these both online simultaneously and we can see it. We can enact it as a polarity or, you know, as any number of ways of reconciling sort of these kinds of conflicts. And when we do in our own minds and in our own hearts, it feels good. It's a source of happiness to kind of feel you reality reintegrating, right? There's also mindfulness and meditation, cultivating inner peace and self-awareness through mindfulness practices, and then personal transformation, continuously reflecting on one's experiences, beliefs, and values to grow and evolve. So here again, just like green and amber had that harmonic between them, we can see some harmonizing here between teal and orange. They're both interested in personal development, for example. They just have sort of different interpretations of what that means. And if this chart went further into turquoise, Hey, it does. Turquoise. Well, there you go. We'll go to turquoise. So at turquoise stage, happiness strategies revolve around the interconnectedness of all beings and the pursuit of collective well-being. Yes. I often say, Keith, that the teal stage is where we begin to understand self as instrument. And we want to fine tune our instrument as well as we possibly can. But at the turquoise stage, it's when we start playing that instrument within a much larger symphony of experience, a symphony of the world, a symphony of the universe. That's At right. Turquoise, we suffer if we don't do that. That's right. That's right. There's an but abundance. If you do drive. it, we feel pleasure. We feel God's pleasure. Hundred percent. So here we have deep ecological awareness, recognizing the interdependence of all living beings and working towards environmental sustainability. Here's a resonance with green, right? Yeah. Global consciousness, cultivating a sense of responsibility and care for the well-being of all people and the planet. Oh, that can almost sound like wokeness, except turquoise sort of enacts that a little bit differently. Well, it also sounds a little bit like Jesus Christ. Yeah, exactly. I love your brother. Okay. That's right. That's right. And then speaking of whom, <laughs> transpersonal experiences, engaging in practices that encourage a connection with the transcendent, such as meditation or contemplative prayer. So these are examples of different strategies that, again, this doesn't apply more to the right or more to the left. These are happiness strategies that are available to all of us at certain, you know, stages of our own growth and development. And I want to be careful here because oftentimes when we talk about the left versus the right, there's some shorthand that we can do. It can be tempting to say, oh, well, the left is all, you know, orange to green. We hear Ken say this oftentimes, for example, while the right is predominantly amber to orange. And there might be some truth to that when we look at when, we, yeah, exactly. When we look at sort of the center of gravity of the yeah. discourse of the left and the right, that is not to say there are not just 
countless, countless exceptions to that rule. For example, wokeness, which we'll get to in a little bit, wokeness is really primarily an amber expression of green views and values that many of the people who are participating in, within woke culture are not capable of actually sort of thinking up on their own. They can't show the math for these pluralistic values that they are trying to enforce in very absolutistic and rigid sort of ways. Yeah. So this is not a matter of like, oh, the left is world-centric and the right is ethnocentric. Not at all. However, the discourse can oftentimes, you know, its center of gravity can often be sort of pegged at some of these stages. Which then, Keith, brings us to the second graphic, and I think that this one is critical because this one does get us into some of the typological differences between the left and the right, and we can see some stage elements factoring in I here, I love too. the second one. So this is towards an anti-fragile society. Now, let's explain anti-fragile. You know, so let's give people a definition because not everybody knows what that means. That's right. And let me just say from the beginning that I think anti-fragile is one of the most unfortunately named qualities out there. Yeah, I really don't like the idea. Words talking about something really great. That's right. But when it comes to marketing, he did a horrible job when he wrote that book. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. That said, the concept itself is tremendously valuable. Smart, I just smart. I just wish I had a different name to it. But since this is sort of the term that's in the zeitgeist, right? That's right. Um, let me just frame it this way. So we can often talk about two different sort of poles in this polarity. We can talk about something like fragility. And we can talk about something like resilience. Now, when you first hear those words, you might enact them and sort of place judgments on them. You might say, well, it's obviously better to be resilient than it is to be fragile. Who wants to be fragile? And yet, think about the stuff in your home. The most fragile stuff in your home tends to be the most beautiful, right? Whereas the most resilient stuff, like the stuff you can pick up and throw against the concrete wall and it's not going to break... It tends to be, you know, not so much on the beautiful side. So there are clearly important qualities that we want to integrate when it comes to fragility and resilience. And this polarity map, I think, helps surface some of these qualities. So let's yeah. go through it. Let's go through it. So the way polarity maps work is we have the fragility as on one pole, we have resilience on the other pole. The top quote unquote quadrants. These aren't quadrants like Ken Wilber's quadrants, but the top quadrants are showing the positive qualities associated with both of these. And then the bottom quadrants are showing the negative qualities that are associated with both of these. So the positive side of fragility is sensitivity, being more attuned to changes in the environment. Adaptability, the ability to make changes or adjustments based on the situation. Empathy, recognizing and understanding the needs and the feelings of others. And then the positive sides of resilience are strength, the ability to withstand stress and adversity, stability, consistent and predictable behavior or responses, and confidence, belief in oneself and one's abilities leading to greater self-assurance. So again, these positive qualities are the qualities that we want to integrate together into a healthy anti-fragility polarity. When they are not integrated with each other, they disintegrate from each other. So fragility that has become disintegrated from resilience has the qualities of vulnerability. There's a susceptibility to damage or harm, particularly from external factors. We'll get into this quality a little bit more in just a minute. Instability, the tendency to change or fluctuate, leading to unpredictability. 
an insecurity, a lack of confidence or assurance causing anxiety and fear. So we might call these negative qualities of fragility brokenness, right? But then on the resilience side, the negative qualities there, when resilience has been totally decoupled and disintegrated from fragility, we have rigidity, an unwillingness to change or adapt or consider new perspectives, insensitivity, a lack of responsiveness to the changes in the environment or the needs of others, complacency, self-satisfaction leading to a lack of motivation for improvement or growth. All of these might be described not as brokenness, but as brittleness. Brittleness is a quality that super hard materials have where they can chip, ironically, right? We're talking about resilience, and yet resilience can be tremendously brittle when it's not tempered by fragility. So again, the goal here is to integrate the very, very best qualities of fragility and of resilience. However, I think, Keith, the way we're seeing this kind of stratify in our culture, in education, in our different sort of political cultures, etc., is that the left really, really focuses on fragility, both positive qualities and negative qualities, and the right really focuses on resilience, both positive qualities and negative qualities. And in fact, the majority of the culture wars that I see are typically a war between those two bottom quadrants. You have all the worst elements of fragility against all the worst elements of resilience. And then that becomes the new discourse within which all of these conversations. Well, remember, remember, if you're going with drama instead of problem solving, the left will identify with the top left and will identify the conservatives by the bottom. And the conservatives will identify with the top and identify progressives at the bottom. Okay, That's right. Why? Now, this is where the psychology of it comes in. These are actually memory systems that we're hmm. looking at. You know, this is how our unconscious is organized to give us data, to give us stories and impulses and, and so on about moving forward. In the unhealthy side of it, we have defenses that cause us to dissociate and not self-observe ourselves engaging in that kind of stuff. And so these memory systems will then give us things to do. And we have this dissociative defensive stuff to not observe it. So what happens to the other side? The other side attacks us. Right. Now, instead of saying what's valid about that attack, where I would actually look at where my blind spot is, I feel like I have to counterattack. And this is the dynamic of the drama, of why you add moral outrage, moral grandstanding. It's more entertaining, but it doesn't get anything done. Right. It's not solving problems. And so what I want to find in the other person, and therapists are biased toward, you want to find somebody's strengths in their position. And then you go from an integral perspective, all right, how can those strengths be better and be stronger? Where are those blind spots? How can those blind spots be turned into little illuminations that cause this person to grow? And when they grow, what happens is it's not just you have ideas, your unconscious changes so you're less likely to go to the drama, more likely to go to the problem solving. And one thing about the spiral is that every level up gives us a little bit more capacity to self-observe. That's right. You still have blind spots, but it's harder and harder to maintain them, particularly at teal and turquoise. And right. that's a good thing. Right. right. Yeah, Keith, that, that's important to point out is that because this is a polarity, both of these poles exist at every stage. 
Yeah, right? exactly. there are red versions of, of fragility and resilience. There are amber versions of fragility. and For example, a lot of the reactions that we see on the right to things, you know, the moral panics that we see, we're in the midst of one right now around transgenderism. This could be seen as a symptom of fragility that is enacted at the amber stage. Now, I might argue that that's actually more like brittleness than it is fragility. It's sort of a resistance to change, right? But the point being, this polarity exists at all stages and certain stages will naturally emphasize one over the other. Amber, on the whole, is going to more often than not emphasize resilience values more than fragility values. Green, on the whole, is more often going to emphasize fragility values over resilience values. And then when it comes to like applying this map to Jonathan Haidt's work, for example, Jonathan Haidt loves to talk about something that we love talking about, which is how we can have an internal locus of control, which is generally regarded as a positive thing. Yeah, that's versus, resilience. Exactly. Versus an external locus of control, which we often enact as a negative thing, which causes suffering. The internal locus of control, the healthy internal locus of control, we're going to see in the upper right quadrant in this polarity map. The external locus of control, which is unhealthy, we're going to see in the lower left quadrant of this polarity map. So one is a healthy expression of resilience. The other is an unhealthy expression of fragility, all of which allows us to see how we have to kind of trace this figure eight infinity sign through these different poles so that when we start moving just a little bit too far we start feeling some maybe hyper resiliency for example that's making us feel brittle or making us feel unmovable and or you know sort of calcified well that is an invitation to kind of swing back over to the left